Well, good morning, friends. We're glad that you're here once again. Uh, if you've been here at all this week, how many of you were here uh, the whole week, every single day this week for VBS, okay? So we really had a tremendous week, and many of it, much of it comes from a lot of you guys who just put all that time in, and we thank you so much for that. And uh, in that, one of the things that happens for me each year, in the planning each year, I always sign up for one particular job, and that job is the parking lot. I love working in the parking lot at VBS. I get the opportunity to interact with all the families as they are coming and going. I get to uh, hug little kids, high five little kids. I get, uh, this year I was wearing a backpack and so uh, they gave me all kinds of stuff to hang off of my backpack every day and so it was just kind of being added to uh, throughout the week. It's just a really, really sweet time. So sometimes when you're in the parking lot you get to stand in the rain. Sometimes you're in the parking lot, you get to get a sunburn. Sometimes when you're in the parking lot, all types of things will happen. The, the uh, parking lot one year got uh, resurfaced and paved, not paved, but the, the tar down uh, while we were trying to run VBS. That was an exciting one. Uh, last year, we had active uh, tornado warning sirens and stuff going on while I'm in the parking lot trying to tell people to park. Uh, but it really is, is a, a fun time for me to be able to be out there. Uh, as, as we've had people coming through each day, I get the opportunity to talk to some of these families. And there's just this real excitement about what's going on here at VBS, particularly this year. It was just a lot of great stories being told. Uh, but it shouldn't be missed. It would be uh, foolish of me to, to not tell you that not every story was perfect and positive and happy. And so I had a few conversations with people in the parking lot, how they actually felt very intimidated by coming into the building and what looked like uh, hundreds, if you will, of families uh, that have this perfect family happy where the kids like each other and they're spending time together and they're learning verses and they're looking at their kids and going, I don't see it. Like they, I'm dragging them here. We got in a big fight to get here and the kids are not happy, or there's uh, one woman was saying that there's this medical condition that her daughter has, and, and it's really making things very complicated uh, for them at home, and she's just not herself, and there, there's just a real struggle in that home. Uh, there's a family who went through uh, loss this week, and they're probably not the only one, of, of saying, how do we make sure that we encourage our kids and, and put a good face on for our kids, and yet uh, grieve at the same time? There's families are going through really difficult struggles with husband and wife and, and the parents, they may be even at the brink of divorce and yet they're trying to come and bring their kids and, and show that their kids, uh, that there's something better for them and trying to shield them from all of that. These are real things that are happening that we cannot just kind of gloss over and say uh, VBS was a great week and we're all so happy that it happened. Okay, I want to be careful uh, as we do that. But if you've got your bulletins this morning, there's a white sheet of paper in there. It's going to get us started. It's going to give you an outline as we go through it. And I ask you this question to get started today. How would your outlook on life change if you believed God was really with you in every situation? Whatever that situation is that you're bringing with you this morning, and there's hundreds of different ones. Some of you are coming from a real tough week. Others, you had a fantastic week. But we're all here in the same room. So what would it look like if your outlook on life changed because you believe that God was working through absolutely every situation? If it's your first time here with us this Sunday, or if you're a guest with us, or if uh, you haven't been here in a while, it's a great Sunday to come back because this is a new sermon series that we're starting, our summer sermon series called True Colors. We'll be dealing with the life of Joseph. 
and the theme that we just talked about, the families, uh, all those perfect families supposedly that are coming to VBS or coming here to our church, and maybe you feel like you've got the dysfunctional family. Well, Joseph's story is a story for you. He is the epitome of a dysfunctional family, and we're going to see how God uh, is going to work through that. And so as we, we look at this, uh, Joseph was born into a very dysfunctional family, and yet he stands out as one of the most godly men in all of Scripture. We'll be in Genesis chapter 37 is where we'll begin today. Genesis chapter 37, it's the first book in your Bible. As you open up, you make your way there. If you're using the pew Bibles in front of you, those black Bibles, it's a new international version. It's page 40. So Genesis chapter 37 on page 40 is where we'll begin this morning. Genesis chapter 37 or page 40 there, uh, new international version. I'm going to start reading in chapter 37. Here it goes. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks of his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. He brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because when he had been born to him in an old age, he made an ornate robe for him, a robe with many colors. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said this to them, listen to the dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up, stood upright, and all of your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had a second dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were all bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. This is the passage we'll be working from today, Genesis 37, 1 through 11, and we get introduced to this character, this person, Joseph. Now, hopefully you're kind of feeling out where we're at because there are many Josephs in Scripture. There's Joseph, the husband of Mary, is the other most popular one, but this Joseph is son to Jacob and Rachel here in Genesis. There's a few other Josephs scripple, uh, throughout Scripture, sprinkled throughout, but this is the Joseph that we're talking about this morning, son of Jacob and Rachel. In the middle there, uh, we saw now Israel in verse 3 loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Israel is a synonymous name for Jacob. When Jacob began to pursue God and turn away from his sinful behavior, God gave him a new name named Israel. So I don't want you to get confused there with that. Joseph's story is important, and here in Genesis, Joseph is actually covered more than any other of the main characters that we read about here in Genesis. It's longer than what we read about the historical narrative that we get from Adam, or from Noah, or from Abraham, or from Isaac. Uh, Joseph is born in Genesis chapter 30, and then he carries us through the end of Genesis through chapter 50. So that's 20 chapters, uh, specifically 37 and forward, that are about Joseph and his life. There's a significant part of Scripture being donated to him and his story, so we're going to donate for ourselves a significant amount of time to talk about the life of Joseph. 
Joseph also is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. As we go through uh, the story of Joseph, you ought to have kind of that idea of, oh, I've, I've seen you before. I recognize you. You ever, you ever have someone come up to you in a store or a restaurant or at the fairgrounds and they say, hey, 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 it's so good to see you, Todd. And, and you're not Todd. <laughs> and there's just this kind of, there's, there's this foreshadowing of, but there's something familiar about it. So Joseph is not Jesus. Be clear with that. This is not the same person, not the same character. It's not an allegory, but there are some foreshadowing here. There is uh, this, this precursor to Jesus that Joseph foreshadows. So this will also document three stages of his life as well. We'll cover Joseph from birth to 17. Uh, and, and in this part where we're looking at today even, you'll see that there's trouble brewing there's a problem in, in, in the middle of all of this, and there's this trouble kind of starting, this storm that is, that is brewing. So that's through age 17, and then from age 17 to 30, the dysfunctional family is on in full force, and we will see uh, what he goes through. It is going to be out of control what Joseph goes through through age 30. But then at age 30 into his death, we also get to see the documentation of that, and we see God's blessing on the life of Joseph. This makes a very unique uh, scripture for us to read as well because we don't always get the full lifespan of different characters in scripture. We know about Paul. We read a ton of his letters, but we don't know a whole lot about how Paul was raised or what his home life was like or what the thorn in his side that we read about. What, what was that about? Well, we don't know as much material on the Apostle Paul as we do here with Joseph. So go again, back to your Bibles, chapter 37, verse 1. Let me read a few more verses uh, here, beginning in verse 1, and kind of dive in a little bit. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilhah, the son of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought his father a bad report about them. Uh, there'll be more to come of this here, but he is leading. The, the first thing you hear about Joseph is that he is doing what? He is a tattletale. He is telling on his brothers. Now, now, granted, from what we know about his brothers, there was something wrong. They were doing something wrong. But Joseph uh, is the first one to go tell his dad about it. Now, Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him, the, the robe, the coat of many colors, uh, there's some different commentaries that say even maybe that the coat had no seams in it, that it was all seamless. It was all uh, just this really expensive piece of fabric. And his brothers saw that his father loved him more than any of them. They hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, this passage, as it begins, it says, Jacob, this is where he landed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. And it goes immediately into, it doesn't cut any punches here, depicting the tension that is in his home. And just like most dysfunctional families, maybe yours as well, this is just the tip of the iceberg. This little picture that they give at the beginning with the story of Joseph going and telling on his brothers. Uh, the family was so unbelievable. The fight was going to be so bad uh, that this is just one small part. Joseph's story makes a good soap opera to the point that no one would basically believe it. Here's the background on Joseph. He had three stepmothers, ten stepbrothers, one brother and a stepsisters, all living in the same home at the same time. 
His father Jacob, though generally a godly man, embraced polygamy that was common in the day with the pagans of the day, which opened the door then to jealousy, insecurity, and almost constant conflict between and among those wives. Jacob was also a passive parent whose lack of involvement and leadership, we'll talk about this some, brought an incredible pain and confusion to his family. As well, Joseph's brothers took turns being brutal, conniving, and openly immoral. So it sounds like something that you would see on some TV show in mid-afternoon, Jerry Springer type of show. Like this is the guys that you would bring in and say, here's 12 brothers, three stepmothers, all living in the same house, and we've got cameras on them all times. Let's see what happens. Yet amid the fighting the blatant sin, the bad examples, the emotional manipulation that we will see here. This was the environment, for some reason, this was the environment that struck the seeking heart of young Joseph to be a man after God, to be one of the pillars of faith that we can look at here in Scripture. This was the environment by which he was developed. So I go back and ask you the question from the beginning, how would your outlook look like in on life look like if you believe God was really with you in absolutely every situation. We have a few fill-ins for you this morning, so you take a pencil or pen and make your way through with us. The first fill-in for you is this, truly loved by his father. Truly loved by his father. Now the family history, favoritism had a long history in Jacob's family. Isaac's preference for Esau, Rebekah's preference for Jacob, and Jacob's preference for Rachel. This is the background. These are, these are the, the grandfather, father figures that were there in front of him and all this preferential treatment. And in every case, it creates major problems for him. Jacob, of all people, should have understood this, and yet his father loved his brothers, loved him more than his brothers. When Jacob should have been sensitive to favoritism, he repeats the sin of his parents. He's truly loved. Parents, we need to learn from Jacob's mistakes. We need to understand that favoritism towards any of your children is going to be a problem. Favoritism at a home is deadly. It will change the entire dynamics of your home and will affect your children for years to come. He was deeply and overly loved by his father. Secondly, he was deeply hated by his family. He was deeply hated by his family. Unfortunately, jealousy, we read, will consume them. Envy and jealousy are extremely destructive character traits. If you don't resist them and take every thought captive, as we read about in 2 Corinthians, they have the potential to destroy everything. Every relationship, envy, jealousy will destroy it. It will destroy your marriage. It will destroy your friendships. It will ruin your, your career. It will alienate you from your friends and your family. It will strip you of joy and contentment. Envy and jealousy burns in your belly and eats you whole. What stirs up envy and jealousy in you, when someone talks about his or her many accomplishments, when others show you their new boat or their new car or their new home, their new computer, their new iPhone, when somebody tells you about the large inheritance that they just received, when someone gets an award, a recognition, or a promotion that you feel like you deserve, 
That's mine. I've been here long enough. I've worked hard enough. When someone talks about their success in an area that you have so badly wanted to excel and you've just not been able to do it, you can't get over that hump, you can't figure out that problem, you can't pass that test, and it seems like it's so easy for them. When you hear others talk about the vacation that you've always wanted and you know you'll never be able to take. Envy and jealousy is the root of almost every sin that we have against one another as believers. Whenever it's harbored, there is an end of the peace, the rest and satisfaction that we are supposed to find in Jesus Christ. In Proverbs 14, it says, A tranquil spirit revives the body, but envy is a rottenness to the bones. So while these brothers burn with jealousy and rage, Jacob keeps the matter in mind, it says here. Like Mary, when she ponders these things in her heart, when she sees uh, the angels and, they are, and she sees the shepherds come and she sees all, she just kind of takes it all in. Jacob is taking it all in. Why? Because he can see that there must be something very unique and particularly special about Joseph. Something intentional is going to happen. Let's talk again about the backstory that we have with Joseph. I know I'm trying to lay a lot of things out for us here as we start this series, but, but Joseph is a complicated person. Why? Because he got a pretty rough start out of the gate. He had to overcome a number of things. Uh, I'm just going to summarize these things for you, but in Genesis chapter 32, we read about a time where Jacob has his entire family, and, and Joseph is a child at that point, has his entire family, and Jacob's brother Esau wants to kill him, and there's going to be 400 soldiers that are waiting for his family. There's a battle going to ensue, and what does Jacob do but send his women and children, send the kids out in front and hope that they do okay on the other side? So he experiences that, the way that his father pushed him out there. Genesis 35, we, we find out when Joseph was 13 years old, and his father takes the whole family back to the place of Bethel, to the very spot that God had spoke to him, that he had fallen asleep in a dream, if you remember. He falls asleep and he sees this staircase or this ladder going up to heaven that he cannot even see the top of. Why? Because God was going to work in his life in such a way that he would not even be able to see how far the ripple effect would go. Wouldn't you think that that planted a seed maybe in Joseph for him to be able to say, okay, that there's something bigger here at play, something more than he would be able to see or calculate. And then soon after that, while there in Bethel, first Deborah died and she was buried under an oak tree at Bethel. Deborah was a family companion and a friend to, uh, she was the nurse to Joseph's grandmother, Rebecca, who had died years before, but she dies there at Bethel. And when they're passing the whole story of Isaac and Rebecca and why they were there and why they uh, had raised the family in the way that they had was retold again. And then secondly, Joseph's own grandmother dies there. Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. And, and uh, bringing through that, his own mother, excuse me, died giving birth to Benjamin. The loss brings home to the fragility of the, that life is short and that time is short. And he's got this new baby brother, but mom's not here anymore. And then the third blow comes to the family shortly after that when Isaac, Joseph's grandfather, passes away. And he was buried where Abraham, Sarah, Rebekah had all been buried. And this unique role again is played out in front of Joseph about the legacy of what God had prepared for him and for his life. And yet he looks around and everything that he sees is a dysfunctional mess. 
in this formative time, 13, 14, 15, 16, these lessons were being taught to Joseph. His life was being formed by these things, picked up in these early years that somehow he would break the cycle of dysfunction and become one of the heroes of faith. Your next feeling for you here leads to what Joseph, as a young boy, was feeling, and you and I may be feeling this morning. Days can be fearful, but God will be faithful. Days can be fearful, but God will be faithful. If you know the story of Joseph, if you know where we're headed, you will, you will know that Joseph is going to go through some very fearful things, particularly for a boy of his age, what he was going to be up against. Even here in our passage today, to have his older brothers. <coughs> He's number 10 of 12 brothers, people. <laughs> and they absolutely hate him. Days can be fearful, and our God will be faithful. Here's your first fill-in. Even when parents are insensitive. Even when parents are insensitive. As we've already seen, Jacob wasn't the world's greatest father by any means. He made many mistakes with his family. He allowed his wives to engage in war over who could have the most children, thus creating this rivalry, conflict, always around the family at all times. There's this battle going on within the family, just like he and his twin brother had fought back and forth. It seems that he would even have let, I think it's in chapter uh, 29 or 30, that Dinah, his daughter, who had been raped, that he was going to even allow her to be married to the man who had raped her if the other boys hadn't stepped in, if the brothers hadn't stepped in and said, this is not going to happen in our family. Jacob was insensitive and foolish father. Here comes along number 10, this boy that he loves because it's the wife that he loves. In his old age, the baby that he didn't think he'd be able to have, now he has, and he relishes this child. He pours everything into this child. He makes good grades, the kid does, and he gets in school, gets along in school, he never gets in trouble. And by the time that they've got a little bit more money, they're a little bit farther along, this boy comes along and he turns 16 and dad gives him the keys to a brand new car. What do you think the other brothers are going to do? The tuxedo, if you will, of what, what has been given, this coat of many colors. When, when Joseph shows up to the fields and he sees what his brothers are doing, it's like showing up to a work site in a tuxedo. You clearly are not there to work. You're clearly not there to interact with the guys who have been doing all the work for the family for all of these years. But Joseph had been raised in such a way that he would never have to do the labor that the other brothers had done. Jacob was an insensitive and foolish father. But the point is that Jacob, even though he was not right, and while we need to work at avoiding the same mistakes, God is still sovereign. And even when your parents, and even when you and I as parents, even when we screw everything up, it would seem, God is still in control. God is the one who is responsible for the souls of our children. God is still in control. God will be faithful. Days can be fearful. Our God will be faithful when teenagers are naive. <coughs> when teenagers are naive. Joseph had two dreams in which the obvious point of both of these dreams would be that he was elevated among, above his brothers. What did he do? He goes and he tells every one of his brothers about the dream 
that he just had. Some think he was wrong in doing this. I just think he was naive. He's foolish. Uh, he's a 17-year-old who lacked the wisdom and maturity and a few more years of life. And maybe share those dreams and confidence with his parents, with his father, his mother would have been wise to share them with an old friend and ask him for wisdom, ask him for advice what to do. But to share them with his brothers who were already angry with him, who were already furious with him, who were always jealous and envious of him, this is who he decides is the audience that he is going to share the news of this dream with. How naive. How foolish. But I don't think any of us as an adult can look back at our lives as a teenager and think, well, thank goodness I wasn't naive and foolish, and I made all the best choices you could possibly make. How many of you would raise your hand and say, that was me, I did the very, yeah, thanks, Rick, that, that's great. We need to talk about this afterwards. How foolish is that of us to say that? No, it's a learning process. We all do a number of foolish, naive, stupid things in our youth in spite of the fact that our parents tell us not to do that. It's part of the growing process, in spite of wise counsel. But you know what? God is sovereign, even when teenagers are naive, even when mistakes are made. I assume that God gives Joseph these dreams because they were true. And we will see that come to life as we go through this passage. He's allowing him to see a glimpse of what he is going to do through him. But for Joseph to go and tell his brothers, I had this dream about the sun, the moon, and the stars all bowing down to me. What do you think of that? He said, I had this dream about being out in the fields. We were all working out in the fields, and we all bundled these things together. And then my bundle was in the middle. And you know what happened? All of your bundles bow down to my bundle. Joseph, you're looking for a beating. In some ways, he deserves it. Him being naive didn't thwart God's sovereign plan. We seek to live wisely. We seek to make good choices, godly choices, seek godly counsel. But when we don't, and we don't, we have to trust that God will overrule and sometimes even use just dumb luck, it would seem, to fulfill his plan for your life and for mine. Days can be fearful, but God will be faithful. When people are hateful, when people are hateful. Let's go back to verse 5. Joseph had a dream when he told his brothers. They hated him all the more. He said, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, and suddenly mine sheaf rose up and stood upright, and all of your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him. His father kept this in mind. His brothers were jealous. His brothers were envious. This was a problem, and it was going to get worse and worse and worse. My wife and I lived in an apartment that we only stayed in for three months. We were waiting there in the apartment until our house was ready. We were trying to close on a house, and was, we were able to get a three-month uh, apartment. And at the time, we had a dog. This, this week, we had a, my dog's a three-legged dog, got to be one of the heroes of the VBS week. We got to tell her story, which was a lot of fun. This is a previous dog. Uh, her name is Daisy May. She's a cute little dog, but she got uh, in a little scuffle with another dog. And uh, she got the corner of her ear was bit. And so that ear swelled up. 
real big. And so she had this big, puffy, ridiculous looking ear. We're in this apartment and we decide to go out to dinner. Uh, but she was a young kind of puppy, and so we put up a gate and had her in the kitchen of this house, and we went out to dinner. And when we came back, that dog, which had this big swelling ear, had, had gotten really painful, and so she had scratched a hole in this puffy, ridiculous ear. And so what happened then is now she has blood oozing and running down her ear, and because she's a dog, what do dogs do when they get wet, or when, what do they do? They shake. You, other people have other ideas of what dogs do. I, they roll around. They said, not my dog. This dog shook. And there was, the, it looked like a murder mystery scene. There was blood everywhere. And it was in this, these slices, just back and forth. I mean, every time she shook her head, blood would just squirt and all over the place. And so we get home. We clean the dog up. We wash her off. She's fine. And then we go into the kitchen and look at this kitchen. What are we going to do with this kitchen? So we do our best to clean it up. We put a coat of paint over the thing. We clean it up. Our lease comes up. And we walk away. Now, you have to believe at some point someone is going This This series is called True Colors. The true colors of those walls at some point are going to start coming through those walls. There's blood everywhere in that kitchen and somebody is going to be eating dinner in that kitchen and start looking around going, what happened here? I have no idea. This is all fabricated. Maybe nothing ever happened. But to me, it would seem like, man, there is something crazy going on. The colors will shine through. It's a matter of time that eventually it's going to get noticed that something awful is underneath. That's exactly what's happening here with these brothers. Right now, the envy, the rage, it's hidden. It's covered up. But over time, it's going to come through. It's going to show itself. The days will be fearful, but believe that God will be faithful. As we just stated, when parents are insensitive, when the teens are naive, and when people are hateful, God still has a plan. God still is moving. These jealous brothers would not ruin him. It would not be over. Why? Because God has a bigger plan for his life than any of those other people do. I told you that Joseph was a foreshadowing of the one to come. You see, the one to come, his name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus... Just like Joseph was loved by his father, and his father gave him a tunic of many colors, his father honored him, his father gave him authority. Jesus, he would come. And in Matthew chapter 3, 17, Jesus, his father, who was truly loved by his father, his father said about him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In Matthew chapter 28, he says, the father says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me by the father. In John chapter 19, his garments were without seam. He is without fault. Jesus was truly loved by his father. Joseph was deeply hated by his family. Deeply hated by his family. Joseph's brothers absolutely wanted him gone. They wanted this story to stop. Tuxedo boy out in the middle of the work site. They want this to be over. 
Jesus was deeply hated by his family, his spiritual family, his Jewish brothers and sisters hated him. The common people heard him gladly. When Jesus told parables, the common people were more than welcome, and they always would, would bring him in, and they would tell us, tell us more, Rabbi. We want to learn more. But it was the religious leaders, his family, the Jews, that they hated him. They despised him. They were jealous of him. Envy boiled up inside of them as well. They brought false witnesses in to lie and accuse him at his trial. They, in the end, demanded his very blood. There's more than a hundred different ways that we tie Joseph to Jesus. These foreshadowings, these, these ways that Jesus' life was, was foreshadowed by Joseph. You see, our days can be fearful, but our God is always faithful. Why? Because just like Abraham was promised that one day the Messiah would come. Guess what? Joseph is part of that lineage that the Messiah would come through. And in all of this dysfunction, the one who would save your souls and mine was there. God had a plan. God is sovereign. We can trust God no matter what happens to us because his sovereign loving hand is on us even in the little happenstances of life. I don't know what you came with this morning, what happenstances you went through this week, whether your schedule was really busy or it was really light, whether it was really painful, whether your calendar or your checkbook looks pretty bad this morning. I don't know what you're going through, but you need to hear that God is sovereign. He has a plan and he will fulfill it. 2 Corinthians 4 says, For our present troubles are quite small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us an immeasurably great glory that will last forever. God has a plan, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, for those who have been called according to his purpose. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. God has a plan for your life. God will fulfill that. He put each and every one of us on this planet for a reason. And that is to glorify him with our lives. And so as we look at this passage today, as we look at the life of Joseph, as we look at what he has, you will see dysfunction everywhere you look. When you look at your family, when you look at what's going on in your life, you look at our country, when you look at your neighborhood, you will see dysfunction everywhere you look. Do not miss that God is right in the middle of all of that. Sovereign. When our days are fearful, will you remember that God is faithful. This morning we have a time of communion. The Lord's Supper is a time for us to be reminded about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, that he would fulfill what he started. If the attendees that are helping us with communion this morning, if you'll come forward, we, we want to be reminded that communion, we are told to share in communion regularly every time that we gather we do this at least on a monthly basis so that we remember the sacrifice that Christ made for you and for me. Why? Because in the midst of dysfunction, in a world that was falling apart, he entered it for your sake and for mine. Paul gives instructions for properly observing the Lord's Supper, that this would be a remembrance, this would be a reminder to you and to me and to all who partake 
of the sacrifice, the great sacrifice that God had made. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is much more than just sipping a cup of grape juice and eating a little wafer. It's important because this simple act is a way to symbolize that we know and we understand what the sacrifice was that was given for you and for me. It's a solemn time to think about Christ and what he sacrificed. It's a time to evaluate our lives based on how God would have us to live. And it's a matter of trust. That we trust that the sacrifice that he made for you and for me before a holy God is and forever will be sufficient.